If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. On the show today, we have Ellen McCarty, who is a fellow Atlantan and a fellow nonprofit coach and consultant. Ellen and I have been traveling in similar circles for about the past 20 years, and I'm kind of surprised that we'd never actually met each other until, bizarrely enough, a mutual colleague in New York introduced us. And I say bizarre because we probably only live a few miles from each other, and yet we'd never actually met, and we've traveled professionally in very similar circles in Atlanta. So after we were introduced, we met a few weeks later and had an incredible conversation over coffee about the various roles we've had and the things that we have learned over the course of our nonprofit careers, both of which span about 25 years or so. Now, at the end of that conversation, I knew that I had to invite Ellen to come on to the podcast as a guest because she has a wealth of nonprofit leadership expertise, serving as the president of a Make-A-Wish Foundation, Georgia, as the executive director of Jerusalem House, a prominent Atlanta-based housing organization, and the founding executive director of Playworks. She has also served as the interim CEO at several organizations as well. Today, Ellen serves as president of McCarty & Co., where she uses her 25 years of experience as a nonprofit leader to serve as a trainer, coach, and consultant for nonprofits, nonprofit professionals, and guess what? Also people interested in switching from the for-profit sector to the nonprofit sector. As you can imagine, her breadth and depth of knowledge spans the spectrum of nonprofits in size, diversity of revenue streams, nonprofit type, board composition, and program diversity. While I am sure that Ellen and I are going to talk about a lot of things today, we're primarily going to focus on career changers, those folks going from the for-profit sector and becoming nonprofit professionals. Hey, Ellen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. Now, 
I understand that your most important career transition probably came when you stepped into your first executive director role 25 years ago. What helped you make that transition successful? That particular transition was actually an accident, if you will. I had been in the juvenile justice system for over 10 years and headed up a committee to create an adolescent shelter and spent the next five years doing that, traveling over the country, looking at programs, similar programs. And through a series of events, when we created it and were getting ready to launch, I became the executive director of the nonprofit that was the umbrella organization. So it wasn't an intentional, it was kind of a morphing into the nonprofit sector. It's interesting reflecting back because Today, you don't see as many individuals that come into the nonprofit sector by virtue of creating programs. It's more by virtue of having a nonprofit management degree, which is wonderful. They didn't exist back then, or maybe Indiana University did, but that was it. Or they come in through the development route. So it's been a different transition for me because I bring that program lens And that has been really helpful. But yet, I really love the board part. I love the administration of nonprofits. So it's been a nice marriage. You know, I've always said most people become an executive director having come up through one of three routes. So they come up through finance and fundraising. They come up through operations or they come up through programs. So you kind of came up through programs. Mm -hmm. Now, once you moved into that first chief executive role, was there any advice that you received that really helped you in that first role? Yeah. So I have a wonderful story that I share that is embarrassing, but it was one of the greatest teachable moments of my professional career. So real quick, the embarrassing stories are always the best one. Please, please do tell. Yes, (laughs) they always are. And you are able to laugh about them 25 years later. So in my first role, this new adolescent shelter that I was responsible for launching and creating, there was already another shelter, a sister shelter that had been in existence for 10 years. And through some very creative financing, we did not have to fundraise because there was a built-in revenue stream that completely supported that program, that facility. When we were going to triple our operation, that changed. So I decided that I would reach out to foundations in Atlanta. And this was a metro Atlanta county. So it was the third largest county, but it was not in the city of Atlanta. So I identified, I think, 50 foundations and sent letters of introduction and just shared what we were doing with Another Chance Adolescent Shelter. And lo and behold, I received an invitation from one of Atlanta's largest foundations. And the executive director invited me to come and meet with her. So I was really excited and thought, wow, this is just awesome. You know, you send a letter, you get an invitation, you go in, you sit down, you make nice, and you walk out and you have a check. Clearly, I did not know what I was doing, and I knew only enough to be dangerous. But I'm bold. So I went and I met with her, discovered later, and to this day, 25 years later, Anyone will tell you that this is the most intimidating executive director in all of Atlanta's 
foundations. So I'm sitting there with her and she's asking me questions about the program and I can answer anything she asks me. And then she shifts and she starts asking me questions that I'm not as knowledgeable about, such as financial questions, strategic plan, sustainability. So I was not prepared to answer those questions. And that became very obvious very quickly. And I am a pretty short person, but as the interview progressed, I became even shorter. And by the time she had asked all of her questions, I was about the size of a gnome. And all I wanted to do was just flee. I just wanted to get out of that room. But she closed her notebook and she put her pen on top and she sat back in her chair and looked at me and said, I am now going to give you a one-on-one tutorial on everything you need to do when you go and meet with the foundation. So as humiliated as I was and embarrassed, I had enough sense in that moment to know that I needed to really listen to this lady. So she did. She gave me a tutorial. I'll never forget one of the first things she said was, when you go on a foundation visit, do not ever go by yourself. You always bring your board president. If your board president can't attend, you bring another board director, but you always bring the board. Do you have a strategic plan? When I ask you that, you didn't know. I'm going to assume that you don't, but I am going to tell you that you need to have a strategic plan and it needs to be a written plan and you need to be able to clearly articulate it. So she just went through and just honestly gave me a laundry list of do this, do this, do this. So that was wonderful. I wrote down everything that she said, but it was the end of our meeting that really shaped my career. Because she looked at me and she said, and here's what I want you to know before you leave. I've given you tasks. I've given you things that you can take back to your board that you can do. But what I want you to hear is that if you don't do these things, you will not be successful in the foundation community. And she said the foundation community in any city, no matter how large the city, is a pretty small community. And the philanthropic community knows each other. And so what's going to happen here is if you go back and you submit a proposal to the Woodward Foundation, which is Atlanta's largest foundation, Pete McTeer, the president, is going to call me and he's going to ask me if I'm familiar with you. And I'm going to say, yes, we had a meeting. And through this discussion, he's going to discover, I'm going to ask him, did they have a strategic plan? I'm going to ask him if you had really taking care of business. And if you have not, he is going to know that because I'm going to share that. And so what I'm really saying to you is if you don't do these things and you try to circumvent what I have shared with you, you will never get your foot in any Atlanta foundation. Those were her exact words. They are seared in my mind. So I said, thank you very much, went back to my board. We did everything on that list over the next five years, decided to create a campus and to create a third residential program. Which real quick was probably in your strategic plan that you then created. It was absolutely, yes. And so we um, did a feasibility study. We created a capital campaign or launched a capital campaign and she came for a site visit. 
And when she came, I reminded her of that conversation and she remembered it. I thanked her for it. And we did receive a check just a mere five years later. It didn't quite work out the way I first thought, but we received a check of $250,000. The cherry on that cake, if you will, is I wrote her a personal letter and thanked her for taking the time because she could just as easily have thanked me for coming and I walked out and that was it. But she really took the time and invested in me. And I thanked her for that. What was so incredible was she wrote me back and she thanked me because she said, you would be surprised. I do this often. And the majority of the people that I do this for, they don't do what I say. And so I think I share that with people that are just starting out in the nonprofit space, especially if you are in development and you're going to have those visits, that those are the things you need to listen to. You need to listen when someone takes the time to tell you, to share with you, you need to believe them. Because if I had not, I don't think we would have been successful because a lot of over a million dollars came from the Atlanta Foundation community. And had we not done everything she said, we would not have. Because 25 years later, I now know that those were best practices. She didn't say anything that anyone would not know. I just did not know at the time. Right, exactly. It was textbook. And we're not going to name names. I think I know which foundation (laughs) we're talking about here. And I also kind of get this sense, because again, I'm pretty sure I know who this is. It's also because she really cares. I, I think that's why she does close her book and say, okay, let me give you a tutorial, because she really does care. And she really wants nonprofits in the city to be successful. And I think that's true of most foundations. I mean, yeah, foundations get a lot of ass. The people that work for them really care, and they really want to help build the nonprofit sector in their community. They aren't trying to be hostile. No, I think you absolutely said it. They're invested. They're invested in your nonprofit. They've invested in your cause. And uh, she was very genuine. And I've always considered it a gift, the gift of time and a gift of expertise that set me up for success personally, but set the nonprofit up for success. So absolutely, I agree with you 100 percent. And I'll say, I I think one of the takeaways, I know we're primarily going to be talking about career switchers today, but I think one of the takeaways really for those who are already in the nonprofit sector who are listening right now is to make sure that when you go to a foundation, you take your board chair. And also that your board chair is not just there as window dressing. So they're not just there, you know, to sit there and nod their head and smile while the chief executive describes the strategic plan, describes the state of the finances. Because part of what the foundation wants to understand is, does the board chair know what's in the strategic plan? (laughs) And, you know, do they understand what the organization's financial position is? Because they need to understand that when they're making an investment, a philanthropic investment, that the board is doing its governance duty. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great point because the governance of a board, the board is responsible for setting the strategic vision then you're exactly right. That's what the foundation wants to hear. If you're responsible for leading this board and setting that strategic vision, then we want to hear from you how y'all arrived at that vision and how you plan to meet that vision. So I am so glad you shared that story. That is such a great story. And again, I think there's some good takeaways there for our listeners. Obviously, take a board chair with you, but also if 
one of the largest, most prominent foundations in your town gives you some advice. It's probably a good idea to take it. (laughs) Probably so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They're probably trying to look out for your best interest there. (laughs) Yes. It makes me shudder to think what would happen if I had not. Right. And at some level, while while I think you were coming from the government sector and not from the for-profit sector, you were a career switcher yourself because you were coming from juvenile justice to really run a nonprofit providing youth services. Yes. And so obviously you had to learn a lot about fundraising as a career switcher, but let's have a little bit of a conversation just in general So most people who do coaching have some type of a system. So do you have a system in working with career switchers? And what does that look like? I do have a system. I devised a system when I decided that I wanted to work with individuals that were interested in either switching or maybe they were just interested in exploring the nonprofit sector as a career path. I thought about all the individuals that I knew that either had some pretty deep misconceptions of what working in a nonprofit looked like. And I also did a lot of research. And from that research, my key takeaway was that there is a perception, and it makes sense, there is a perception that if you have the skill sets, so let's say you're a finance person, if you have those skill sets, you can transfer to the nonprofit sector easily, or if you have a finance degree and you move into the nonprofit sector, because you have those skill sets, you will be successful. And there's been a lot of research on this topic. And what the research shows consistently is that that is not the case. So the way I like to think about it is if you're interviewing for a job with me, I'm not going to hire you unless you have those skill sets. The skill sets have to be there. But more importantly, even though that's an essential, more importantly, what the research shows is that people that have either switched, but mostly switch into the nonprofit sector, those that are not successful have not been successful because they did not understand the culture. And so understanding the culture of nonprofits is the number one determinant of whether or not a person is going to be successful. So armed with that knowledge and all of that research and my own interactions with people that were interested, I thought, you know, I I want to, instead of just talking to people about the nonprofit sector, I want to really come up with something useful and practical. So I came up with a system that I call CROP, and it's C-R-O-P, the CROP process. And the CROP process is designed to help people go through systematically a series of processes that will help them determine if the nonprofit sector is going to be a good fit. And so let me ask you, if because I know we're about to unpack that a little bit, can you maybe take us through the crop process from the perspective of somebody you worked with? Sure, sure. So the first thing I do is I created a self-assessment tool. And what I did there was I just wrote down, here's everything that I have heard over the course of my career when someone is talking about working in the nonprofit sector. So there's statements, and the statements might be something like, it's important to me to work um, five days a week and no weekends. It's important to me to know, have a clearly defined job description. It's important to me to I like to work autonomously, not in a team. 
whatever it is. There are 25 questions. And then I took those questions and I sent them out to other nonprofit experts in academia, and they had input on those questions. And then once we were satisfied with the validity of that, that's the first step in the co-op is take this assessment. And from that assessment, I can look and I can not guarantee, but I can pretty well predict whether or not someone is going to be a good fit. And it usually falls three ways. I mean, someone is absolutely going to be a great fit. Someone is going to maybe be a good fit, but there are some red flags. And that informs me about what we need to talk about to make sure that they fully understand. Or somebody is absolutely, it's not going to work with them. So taking that information, then the next thing we do is through one-on-one conversations, we start with the C. And the C is clarity. You know, the C is about you need to have clarity about the passion. What are the missions that you are passionate about? What are your priorities? What are your values? You know, what are you looking for that is going to help you determine whether or not this is a good fit? So I do that through a series of exercises. And one is a values, priorities, passion exercise. So there are two or three exercises that they conduct. And then they look at, we look at all of that. And the next piece of the quant methodology is reflection. So we reflect on that. You know, what does that tell you? If your values fall over here and the job that you're considering is totally not going to meet that value, which is fine, there's no judgment. So can you give an example of that? Sure. So, for example, a person may say, I really value the time that I have on the weekends. So I do not ever want, that is my time. That is my family time. That is my space. So that is important to me. That is an essential. So there would be like eight values from this values list that they would have to choose from. So I can look at that. And if they're considering a development position, I can know pretty quickly that, you know, there's not an alignment there because most events are going to occur on the weekend. And so if that's a must-have, and that's the way this is set up, is you identify your must-haves, then that's going to help me know, okay, you know, if this is a must-have, it's not going to align with the position that you're looking for. So if that's a priority, that's one example. So we spend a lot of time, they spend a lot of time reflecting on that. You know, what is it? What insights did I gain from that? And then how am I going to use those insights to inform my thinking and my motivation? From there, we move on to organize it. I also, there's a, a wonderful exercise that I do called the four lens exercise. And the four lens exercise, the philosophy behind it is that people typically join a nonprofit through four lenses. And those lenses are an issue. So I am absolutely passionate about working to eliminate human trafficking. That's an issue. Or it's an organization. You know, I want to work for a national organization, so I'd like to work with something like the American Cancer Society. So it's an organization. Or it's a policy issue. You know, I am very, very passionate about environmental issues, so I want to work in an area that is about the environment. 
the other one is a role. So I really want to be a development officer or I really want to be an executive director. So typically a person goes into it, whether or not they know it at the time, through one of those four lens. So we organize all of that and we say, okay, what did you learn from this? What can you do with all of this information? And then how can we identify nonprofits that align with that? So the last step is plan. So we do. We say, okay, here are, you know, there could be one or there could be two areas that they're really passionate about. Here's what some of those organizations look like. You know, if you choose education, is it STEM? Is it what kind of education? What kind of issue? We all know there's so many education and human service organizations. So it's just drilling down and drilling down and helping them to gain clarity and clarity and clarity. And then we come up with a plan. And oftentimes that plan will include informational interviews. So they will actually go out and talk to people in those roles or at those organizations. And from there, they have a plan. And you know, if I can just jump in, I, I feel like those informational interviews are, are so critical because part of what you're doing is you're really networking with the people who are going to know about the jobs when you're actually ready to start looking. So like, you know, if you know you want to be a development director or well, you probably are not going to be a development director at a national organization, but you know, if you're coming from the for-profit sector, but if you know you want to end up in development with a national organization, you know, you should probably go into your, you know, in your city and, and have conversations with people that are development directors at national organizations based out of your city. And then they'll get to know you and they'll think about you, you know, especially when you remind them, hey, now I'm looking. If you know of anything, let me know. Yes, totally. It serves many purposes. You know, the number one reason that you, most people do information interviews is to learn and is to really understand what's involved in that role. What are the day responsibilities? What does it look like? What does it feel like? So it's information gathering around the specifics and the task of the role. But to your point, the other equal value to that is you get to make an impression on somebody. You get to demonstrate your passion. You get to demonstrate your skill sets. And if you do a good job and you're well prepared, that person is going to remember you. And also they can be someone that can introduce you. It may not be at their organization, but if you make a good impression, they will remember you when openings come out across the board. So yeah, it's very valuable. So the crop methodology, it works. It's a nice way to feel like at the end of the day, at the end of this process, that you have been intentional, you have been thoughtful, you have increased your knowledge base, and you know what you want, and now it's a matter of going out and getting it. So, Ellen, I am sure there's a lot of people out there, and probably a lot of people who you worked with, who clarified, reflected, organized, and planned, but still face some hurdles in transitioning from the for-profit sector to the non-profit sector. What are some of the biggest hurdles that people face? Yeah. You know, I think there are some. There are some realities to working in the nonprofit sector. And I think the biggest myth, I think anyone would tell you that the biggest myth is that you don't work as hard in the nonprofit sector. And while the majority of individuals that I have worked with, and the majority were executives who had had a successful corporate career and were either retiring early 
or had taken a payout and they were financially secure, every one of them, almost everyone, there were a few exceptions, but not very many, every one of them really wanted to work for purpose and passion. So my job was to help them to understand what that was going to look like in reality. So I would ask them, describe for me what you think a day would look like. And so some of the things that I heard that also align with what the research says is that maybe you don't work as hard. And the research is so very clear. And the anecdotal from individuals who have switched is that is not true. It is absolutely not true, especially when you, well, in any, I mean, in your large organization, your larger nonprofits that are huge, really, in many ways, are very similar to a corporate structure. So it's very similar. In your very small nonprofits, it's not true because you are wearing all the hats. So when you're wearing all the hats and you don't have the luxury of having an infrastructure to support you're just dancing as fast as you can. That's always been my saying when I think about the nonprofit sector. You're just dancing as fast as you can. So the myth that you don't work as hard. The other myths include that you are going to starve. And that is also a myth. Are you going to make as much as you make in the for-profit Well, there was actually a, I'm going to look at my notes here because this was something that I really wanted to share. Oh yeah, the the work for good survey that came out that in Georgia right now, people working in the nonprofit sector make more than the for-profit sector. Actually, this was a national, but it was was that, that you make about seven or 8% more than the for-profit. Now that is not true. It depends on what your role is. In the role of an executive director or CEO, especially if you're a woman, there's a gap of about 23 to 25%. So, you know, there there is some discrepancy there. But the average nonprofit wage was $50,000. So that's a myth. And if I can jump in, I mean, I mean, first of all, I think you're absolutely right that there are still inequity based on gender and race and other things as well. But I also think much like in the for-profit sector, pay also at some level depends on size. You know, and, and so for example, in the for-profit sector, if you own your own, I don't know, you know, so if you own your own nursery, plants and shrubs and that kind of thing, yeah, you're the chief executive, but you might only make sixty thousand dollars a year as the chief executive running your own nursery. But if you are a manager at Lowe's running the entire nursery department, you might make eighty-five thousand dollars. So part of it is the same in the nonprofit sector. If you go to work for a little small quarter million dollar organization, yeah, you're probably not going to make $100,000 a year. But if you go to work for $20 million organization, I bet you there's a lot of people there that make $100,000 a year and up. Oh, absolutely. Totally. And I would say more if you are at that national level. Totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Way more. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one that's really surprising to people. They, They are just kind of in shell shock about that. I think one that I am very personally committed to making sure that people understand is I am a a real type A person. I'm very bold. I'm like, I want to get it done. I just want to lead, lead, lead. And you have to, there's a tension there in the nonprofit sector. On the one hand, it's very fast paced because you don't have typically, unless you're work for a huge 
nonprofit, you don't have all the infrastructure and the resources that you have at the corporate level. So it has to be fast paced and it has to be interchangeable. But on the other hand, it does move slower because while the executive director and the department heads and the the staff are responsible for the day-to-day operations of nonprofits, your strategic vision, again, goes back to your governing board. And so if there are decisions that need to be made at the governance level, that can take a long time because you're working with volunteers. And typically these are corporate people who are very, very busy themselves. And if you need a vote on something or if you need to have discussion on something, that can be really frustrating and it can take longer. You're also, because of the nature of the nonprofit environment, you're also collaborating and you're partnering. So you may be partnering with a government entity. A lot of my background has been spent with federal funders and so there can be months. I mean, it, so that's something that, that I really want people to understand and to think about. And I have to honestly remind myself every once in a while, too, when I find myself getting really frustrated, I have to step back and say, you know this, you knew this. And so let's just kind of regroup here. So those are good examples of cultural things. Ellen, I want to make sure that we have time to ask you our off-the-map question. And I think we've got a good one for you. Mm. So I understand that outside of your work as a consultant, you are a big supporter of the ACE movement, and that's the ACE movement. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So this is really, really exciting to me. In many ways, it feels like I'm going back to my roots So I'm currently doing an acting executive director position with an organization in Georgia called Resilient Georgia. And Resilient Georgia is a convener, if you will. And it is looking at ACES, and ACES stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And so ACES has gained national attention and momentum. It's a huge national movement now. The philosophy behind it, and it's not just philosophy, I mean, there's evidence, there's research, there's a common language. This is something that is heavily supported at the academic level, at the medical level, brain development. It's completely backed by research. But at its core, what it says is individuals, children, because this is birth to 26, that have had adverse experiences such as child abuse, such as neglect. Those are risk behaviors, which we all know, that will and can have a detrimental effect on somebody for the rest of their life. So the way you would interact with that person and the way you would respond and maybe treat that person is going to be different than the way you would someone Say, for example, my son, who had a a fairly healthy, normal childhood. So it then becomes conversation about trauma-informed care. And this is where it becomes exciting because your major hospitals, medical schools, everybody that touches nursing schools are all getting on board to create practicums, to create education and classes around trauma 
and around the effects of ACEs. There is also an ACEs assessment that anybody can take. You could Google it after this podcast, and it will give you an ACEs score. So the research clearly defines if you fall between zero to six or this. If you fall anything above six, you are at greater risk for this. So the thought behind it is, again, if we can have in our medical communities, if a doctor is seeing a child, a pediatrician, and he knows that that child has an ACEs score of 10, he doesn't need to know what that 10 involves, but the fact that that child has a 10 is going to inform him. And so the way he is going to treat that child or have a conversation with that child and his parents is going to be more informed because of that. And then the long run, there are going to be better outcomes. So it's a big national movement. I would encourage anyone to please go to the ACES website to learn more about that. But in Atlanta, Morehouse School of Medicine, Emory, UGA, Georgia State, uh, all the schools are on board with this and are really making it a priority to get behavioral health into the classroom. Nice. It would definitely be great to get more behavioral health into our schools. So I'm glad you're working on that, Ellen. It has been so nice spending this time with you today. I am grateful for everything you've shared. I promised um, we'd primarily focus on career switchers. We probably spent probably 30 or 40% of the time on grants, but I know that our listeners love to hear about grants as well. So I am so glad that we also got to have that conversation. Now, Listeners, Ellen's consulting practice just launched a beautiful new website at McCartyandco.com. So be certain to check it out. While there, you can find out about her coaching, consulting, and career switching services. I am confident in recommending Ellen and her work to any nonprofit or nonprofit professional wannabe. Hey, Ellen, thank you again for coming on today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was fun. <laughs> Now, don't forget, there's no need to slam on the brakes on the highway and write down Ellen's information with the old chapstick you found under your seat. We'll have the URL for Ellen's website and all of her contact information on our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Also, listeners, one of my favorite things is hearing from all of you about the great work that your nonprofits are making possible. But I also know that every day is not sunshine and rainbows in the nonprofit sector. It's something that career switchers find out all too often, but you and I already know that. And that's why, listeners, I want you to send me your questions. I make it a point to answer all of my listeners' questions in real time. But when I get a juicy one that I know could be asked by hundreds of other people, I include them in our Ask Dolph episodes. Because let me be clear, in the end, this show is made by and for the nonprofit sector to share ideas across our community. So send in those questions. Now, if you enjoyed today's show, please do me a favor and hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you use. And don't forget, in addition to subscribing, we love it if you rate and review the podcast as well. That is our show for the week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. 
always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.